What's going on, everyone? Welcome to our online service. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors. Before we get into today, uh, let me say a brief word of prayer for us. Heavenly Father, um, Scripture is full of this notion that you want to be near us and you invite us to come near to you so that you can draw near to us. So, Father, in this moment, I pray that uh, you would remove our distractions or help us to persist through the distractions in our homes uh, so that we can draw near to you, trusting that you would draw closer to us. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few months ago, when this pandemic all began, I was really, really miserable. It wasn't just because of the pandemic. Uh, it was because I had this nagging sense that I had to make a big decision. Now, this was before there were any deaths, and this was before we have the pandemic as we know it now. A lot of places were mentioning closing and adding different precautions and safety features for their gatherings. And since the decision fell in my lap on what we would do and when we would cancel services, I started to develop this sense that it was all up to me. What that led to was a difficulty eating and sleeping. And I love to sleep. And whenever I have a problem sleeping, then you know it's a real issue. But I had what's probably mostly uh, most similar to almost a, a panic attack one day sitting in the office where I felt my heart beating out of my chest and I was so anxious and I was so worried because it just felt like it was all up to me. Now, some of that certainly was the pressure of the pandemic, but what scripture actually says, the root of that anxiety and worry and all of that was actually something the Bible calls pride. Let me define pride for us. Pride is an oversized image of self. Pride in the religious sense is the refusal to let God be God. What was going on in my life? Instead of praying and going to God for, for wisdom and submitting and surrendering to God, his plans for whatever decisions I would make, I wasn't doing any of that. I was worried. I was having as many conversations as I could with the mayor's office and with different friends and seeking counsel from other people. Now, make no mistake about it, those things are good to do in and of themselves. But the problem arises when we start to believe that everything comes back to us. And this is what pride does. Pride brings everything back to us. Now, we've been talking about this concept of joy. And joy is a, a, a settled state of confidence and hope. Uh, one thing that we've talked about with joy is, in, in a lot of ways, it's similar to a buoy in the ocean. And buoys in the ocean are able to float and remain above the surface no matter what's going on around them because they are anchored to something deep down below the surface, oftentimes the ocean bedrock. What pride does is it makes ourselves a bedrock. It makes our ability, our plans, our wisdom, our, our understanding of how things should go, it makes that the bedrock. And when that moves, uh, the buoy is no longer able to float in our lives. I was drowning in anxiety and worry, not just because there was a pandemic, but because there was a lot of pride going on in my life, where I just started to rely all on myself. Now, pride has a lot of ways that it manifests in, on, in our lives, and the end result of pride is that it always removes joy. We will never be able to have a settled state of confidence and hope in God, in our lives, as long as pride is in the driver's seat for us. There's other manifestations of pride. One of these uh, happens in conversations that I see all the time, and it's people who can't receive forgiveness. They believe that since they don't feel forgiven, uh, since what they've done in their own eyes is, is too bad, 
that even if we read scriptures about what forgiveness looks like in their life, they just don't receive it. I was thinking about this story about a couple of years ago where uh, my father-in-law got a, a big ticket in Maryland and um, my father-in-law had dementia and he was driving and got confused on the road and ended up getting into a car accident. Uh, he got charged with a, a bunch of traffic violations and I'll never forget walking into the courtroom to represent him as his attorney and the bailiff came out and said, everybody in this courtroom should have an attorney or else you're subject to going to jail today. And I remember thinking to myself how awkward of a car ride home it would be driving home with my wife if I got her father thrown in jail. I was absolutely nervous and I went to the district attorney and asked him, I said, hey, I'm here representing my father-in-law. Is there anything we can do to pay a fine or to do something where we can resolve it now before we go in front of the judge? The district attorney knew that he had um, my client, my father-in-law, he knew that he had the case completely sealed against him, so he didn't offer us anything. We got to, uh, um, the judge started calling out different names, and I'll never forget the feeling I had when he called out my father-in-law's name, and we walked up to the bench, and he read his name, and then just said, case dismissed. I have no idea what happened. My father-in-law certainly didn't know what happened, I just grabbed everybody and said, hey, we're leaving, get up, up. Everybody get up, we are leaving right now. And people didn't even know what, what had happened. Uh, the other attorney didn't know what happened. The bailiff didn't know what happened. All I knew was that the judge told us the case was dismissed and we were free to leave. Now, it would have made no sense to stay in the courtroom saying, what judge, I don't understand how I am released. That would have been completely nonsensical and it would have made any sense. And it would have just been unnecessary because a judge had already spoken, the case is dismissed, you are free to leave. For a lot of people, the, the one whose voice and opinion does matter, God, he's released us of our sins through Christ. All of our sins, the Bible says, have been taken, taken to the cross and they've been nailed to the cross. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has Christ separated us from our sins. And yet a lot of us can't find forgiveness. And why is that? because of pride. Pride makes it all back to us and it makes us the final judge and it disregards the voice of God. For others of us, it's not in forgiveness and it's not in anxiety, it's in disappointment. Disappointment occurs in the gap between what you expect and what you actually get. And a lot of us have these plans in our mind of how things should go and we're constantly and routinely disappointed with our lives because in our brains, the world should work a certain way. And when it doesn't go that way, we're devastated and we're really disappointed. Now, what's underneath that? Of course, we should want good things for our life. Of course, God wants us to have good things for our lives. But sometimes we're crushed in disappointment and we're sometimes devastated because we're gripping so tightly on our plans and the way things should go. And deep down inside, what are we believing? We're believing that our plans are better than God's plans. And as a result, when things don't go the way that we want them to go, we don't find ourselves having a settled state of confidence and hope in life. Now, I'm speaking from personal experience. I, I know how devastating it is when things don't go the way that they should go, or at least in your brain. And if we're gonna have joy, what the Bible talks about, this ability to have confidence and hope in every single situation, we're gonna need to really take a hard look at our pride and do something about it. So the Apostle Paul, who's writing us this letter in Philippians, talks about what the opposite of pride is and what we're gonna reach for today, which is something called humility. 
Now, Paul says this in Philippians 2, and Paul is a, is a biblical author. He's a follower of Jesus, and he wrote this letter of Philippians. It's only four short chapters, and over and over and over again, Paul is talking about this concept of joy, and Paul is showing us one way how to get it today and how we can have joy in our lives, and we could be more settled and confident uh, and hopeful in our lives. And here's what Paul says in Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What, what Paul does in this set of scripture is that he points us to what real humility looks like. And humility is an active dependence on God. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not putting yourself down. It's not out of touch with reality. Humility, humility contrasts pride in that where pride makes everything all about me, humility creates space for others and for God. And it intentionally lowers yourself so that they can create room for God. There's a scripture in Proverbs that talks about just how contrary to humility pride really is and dependence on God truly is, uh, pride really is. And it says in Psalm uh, 10 and 4, it says, in his pride, the wicked person does not seek God. And here's why. In all their thoughts, there's no room for God. That's what pride is. There's no room for God in our conversations, in our understanding of the time, in our uh, thinking about how things should be going in our life. And what do we see here in the, in the person of Christ, what Paul is pointing us to, that instead of there being no room for God, he intentionally lowers himself to create all the room for God the Father to direct his paths, to determine his plans and his life. And if you and I are going to have joy, we need to follow after what Paul is saying here in this scripture. And Paul puts this into his own life, actually. Uh, what, what Paul did in his own life that enabled him to have joy in prison were a few things. He wasn't relying on his own ability to understand his, the world or his life. Uh, Paul was in prison, and he no longer could do the things that he wanted to do. But yet, Paul trusts trusted that there was a God behind the surface, behind the scenes, that was working all things out in accordance to his own will. And therefore, Paul could have joy because he wasn't just trusting in himself. And the same thing is true for Paul and his understanding of, the, of his plans. Paul now realized that God could be doing something very different than what he thought um, should have been done or could have happened in his life. And as a result of Paul not trusting in his own ability, in his own plans, or in his own wisdom, he was able to have joy. Now, if you and I are gonna be able to have real joy that endures every circumstance, we're gonna to have to really truly put humility into our lives and not just as a concept that we talk about, right? There's a lot of things that I know in terms of, I know the definition of that thing, but you don't really know something until it transforms your life. So Paul is leading us to the scripture and there's a couple of things that I wanna uh, highlight from the scripture about what humility is and how we could put it into practice in our lives. 
the first thing that Paul says in verse five, he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. What does it mean to adopt the same attitude into our minds and our lives as of Christ Jesus? And I was thinking a lot about this concept of adoption, right? So adoption is always a process that happens. And the process of adoption is to choose to take something or someone into your home and life that did not come naturally. I'm gonna say that again. Adoption is the choice to bring something into your life, a person or a thing that did not come naturally. It means that there is a process that you've gone, gone through to bring something in from the outside. Now, I love the concept of adoption. Uh, I practiced family law for a couple of years, and the happiest thing for any family uh, court attorney is to do an adoption. And you would walk in a courtroom, and the same judge that would be yelling at everybody all the time would now be nice, and she would let people come to the bench, and they'd be taking pictures in the courtroom. Adoptions were always extremely celebratory events that happened in family court. But there was one moment when the judge would warn the parents about what they're actually engaging uh, into, what they're committing to, that they're not committing to always feel like doing something good, that they're making an oath, they're making a promise to bring something in, a child in, that doesn't come to them naturally, and that this decision is really irrevocable. They can't go back on it, no matter how they feel about it. When scripture tells us to adopt the same mindset as Christ, it means that his mindset about life is not gonna feel natural to you. One of the biggest difficulties about our culture in embracing the teaching and the way of Christ is that we have an authenticity culture and that the filter for how we determine truth and falsehood generally depends on how natural it feels to us. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I want you to adopt. I want you to bring in something from the outside that might not feel natural at first, but I want you to bring it into your home, into your life anyway. One thing I do know to be true about adoptions are that years later, these parents who have adopted someone, they can't imagine their life without it. But they first might have had to go through periods where they have reoriented their entire lives around this new person coming into their life. And now as a result, it might not have felt amazing at first, but over time, it was grafted into their homes and that adoption became something that they would feel. And they would feel really, really uh, heartwarming about. As we adopt Christ's mindset and his life into, into our life, it might not feel amazing at first, but the first thing that Paul is calling us to do, that the humble person says, God, I don't know the answers, and I want to adopt your mindset on my life and my situations over what's going on in my life. Now, how do we do that? We adopt the mindset of Christ by giving ourselves to reading scripture so that we can know what his mindset truly is. And then by putting it into practice in our lives. Now, the difficulty of adopting Christ's mindset in our life is that it's not gonna to come to you naturally. It's not always gonna feel like it fits. And a couple of examples about this are, as it pertains to things like forgiveness or generosity, or you can fill in the blank with so many different things. When Jesus calls people to forgive, his disciples to forgive others, he's not saying you're gonna wake up one morning and really feel it in your heart and mind that you want to forgive someone who has genuinely wronged you. What does Jesus call us to? He calls us to adopt his mindset even if it doesn't feel natural to you. The same thing is true for generosity. What does God call us to do? He calls us to be generous in our lives 
And even if it doesn't feel natural or it doesn't feel good, uh, God is still calling us to these things to do. So we adopt his mindset by listening to his words and putting them into practice, even if they don't feel natural. So number one, we adopt Christ's mindset into our lives and adoption is not about feeling, it's about commitment. Number two, the second thing we see in the scripture uh, comes to us in verses six through seven, and it says, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So we're going to gain humility by adopting Christ's mindset. And number two, what we see in the scripture is by doing something that feels so counter to every fiber in our, in our bodies, we have to empty ourselves. We have to empty ourselves. A couple of things that I think we need to empty ourselves of is the need for recognition, the pursuit of personal gain, and our plans for life itself. Why was Paul able to have joy in a prison away from everything that he had longed to do? Because he had emptied himself of this search and this grasp for recognition. His life was no longer about personal gain or selfish ambition. And he certainly had to let go of the plans that he thought he was going to have for his life. And if you and I are going to have real joy, settled confidence and hope in life, we need to make sure that we're emptying ourselves of these things there's a story about how some animal dealers capture monkeys in the wild. What these animal dealers do is they take a number of really narrow-mouthed jars and they stick them deep down into the ground. But before they stick them in the ground, they fill them with these shiny beads. And when the monkeys see these beautiful shiny beads, they run towards the jars and they put their hands inside of them. However, uh, because their fist is a greater diameter than their unclenched hand, it's impossible for the monkeys to withdraw their hands again. Now, does this mean that the monkeys let go of the beads and pursue their freedom? No. What ends up happening is they won't let go of the beads. One author said it like this. Unfortunately, most of us are like these poor monkeys, sometimes in more ways than one. We become so fascinated by some imagined prize and we refuse to let go, even if it destroys us. The monkeys didn't realize that there was freedom in letting go. And I think what Paul is talking about in the scripture and what we see in the life of Christ is that there truly is freedom in us letting go of the way that we think life has to go and to truly embrace and to empty ourselves of our plans, of our wisdom, of our prognostication of how we think things should go or need to go. Now, here's how this kills our ability to have joy. Because a lot of the ways that you and I feel unsettled about life is because the version of life that we imagine, and in some ways, the version of life that we demand from God doesn't happen or it hasn't happened yet. And in the interim, what happens is we develop this accusation against God that something is wrong with God because we have yet to empty ourselves. Here's what A.W. Tozer says about this, and it's been a quote that has been really helpful for me in my life. He says, if someone sets their heart only on doing the will of God, they are instantly free. A lot of times we lack joy because we have yet to empty ourselves. And we do this through prayer. This is how we empty ourselves. When Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him to teach them to pray, he says this, to start your prayers by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, 
that our prayers are not to an, an impersonal being uh, removed from us, but it's better understood as a parent, as a father who cares from us, for us. And Jesus continues the prayer and he, and he includes this line where it says, your kingdom come. What does that mean? Your way of doing things, your way of operation, your viewpoint on things. I want that to come into my life and I want my life, my kingdom to go. The next line that Jesus includes is the scariest line in all of scripture. For me, it's your will be done. That God, I have a will and you have a will. And I want your will to be done in my life. And this is a way that we empty ourselves and it happens through, through prayer. And now this is really big. Emptying ourselves does not mean that we have like this false version of humility where we think that we're stupid or we think that we don't know anything. Humility is not about uh, being less. It's about regarding yourself and your opinion and your interests as less. In verse six, when we talk about uh, Jesus and him uh, humbling himself and embracing this relationship between him and the Father, it says that Jesus Christ is equal to God. And the word in the Greek is this word isos, which basically, if you look at modern day chemistry, uh, I got D's in science, so I'm gonna read this definition. Uh, it's where we get the word isomer. And isomer is something that is the same identical formula, but a different arrangement of atoms. So the nature and the essence of it is the, is the same, but the arrangement is different. So when scripture says that Jesus emptied himself, it's not saying that he was less, uh, less than God the Father. Uh, it's saying that he chose the road that is less than God the Father. And the point that Paul is making is that Jesus did not lose his status as God. Instead, he used his status not for his own purposes, but to benefit and bless others. He was not forced to do anything. He voluntarily chose it. Now, pre-pandemic, I flew a lot. And I, um, if you ask my wife, I kind of get obsessed about achievement and different things and different goals. And I was so happy to have hit gold status on Delta and they're extending in a couple years. So hopefully I'll get it again once this thing is all over. And gold is not platinum, it's not diamond, it's not like some super baller status. But from time to time, when there were not people ahead of me who had a higher status, I would get an upgrade. But there's a problem with that because my wife is a regular person and she does not have the gold status like, like I had. And when, when we would fly together, what would happen is sometimes I would get an upgrade and she wouldn't. Now, since I want to remain married, I would take my first class ticket and I would give it to her. I would sit in coach and she would go to first class. Now, as I'm sitting down in, in coach, I didn't lose my status. I didn't somehow lose the points that I had accumulated over the years. I just chose, sometimes out of fear, I chose to give it up and to bless someone else. Now, when scripture says that Jesus Christ lowered himself and he humbled himself, uh, it's not saying that Jesus Christ lost his status as God or divine. It's saying that he chose to give it up to bless us. He came back to coach so he can upgrade us towards heaven. The last thing I want us to pay attention to is a concept called surrender. So number one, we need to adopt Christ's mindset in our lives, and we need to make sure that we are familiar with scripture so we can know what Jesus thinks about any given topic. Number two, we need to empty ourselves and we need to pray the Lord's Prayer so that we can let go of our kingdoms and our wills and turn it over to God. And number three, we need to do something called surrender. And here's what we see in verse eight of the scripture. It says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. 
Now, what you see in this scripture from Jesus is bigger than just obedience. You can force someone to do what you want them to do. What Jesus was doing was not simply obeying. He was surrendering. There's a scene in scripture where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says that he has sweat beads of blood on his forehead, and he's praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus is surrendering his life to God, his Father. And surrender, as John Tyson puts it in his book, um, uh, surrender is that beautiful posture of the heart in which we humbly climb off the throne of our own lives and invite the one who rightfully belongs there to take our place. That's what surrender is. Surrender is not something that can be forced on you. It's something that you accept. And surrender is not based on force. It's based on trust. Now, what could God do to earn your trust that you would surrender your life to him? That you wouldn't take everything and bring it back to you, but that you would accept and surrender your life to him. I think one thing that gets us there is looking at the gospel and what God has gone to, the lengths that God has gone to, not to get us back, but to, to win us back. And even reading this own scripture about Jesus and laying his life down for us, scripture says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And if you want to know what God is like, you should look at Jesus. And what do we see in the nature and the character of Jesus? That he himself was willing to go to the cross for you and for me so that you and I could inherit eternal life with God, our Father. Now, that's what God has done to, to earn our trust. And God calls us to surrender our life to him. Uh, this week, this coming up Thursday, early in the morning, you'll get details about all the specific times and, and Zoom location. We're going to have some time of prayer and devotion. And the first concept is going to be on surrender. And we're going to get up early. We're going to pray. We're going to read scriptures all about leading us towards this point of surrender. So I hope that you will take part in that. So number one, we need to adopt Christ's mindset. Number two, we need to empty ourselves. And number three, we need to surrender. Let me pray for us. God, there's so many things that would keep us from surrendering our lives to you. And I can think of all the ways that I get anxious and afraid of letting go of control of my life. And Father, I pray that you would heal me of my fear and allow me to surrender my life to you. I pray this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.